Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Welcome to the Tax Wrap Podcast, episode 165. I'm Steve Burnham, and I'm joined again by David Ebden. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. Um, now, coming up on the horizon, July 1, apart from the end of the financial year, is another change, which is uh, relates to GST. Um, there's a plan to charge GST, or apply GST to goods that are bought in from overseas that are, have a value of less than $1,000, the low-value goods. And there's also a change, David, isn't there, on the... Um, purchasing digital products online. I know that um, l- larger retailers have been um, complaining about the, the uneven playing field in regard to GST on low-value goods. So, look, um, if you could just uh, go over what the change is, is that's coming on July 1. Yeah, of course, Steve. Um, there are um, a few um, key reforms uh, that are coming in as of 1st of July relating to the uh, GST on uh, low-value and digital goods. Yep. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, one of them is that uh, from 1 July, um, the operator of um, an electronic distribution platform uh, will be treated as the supplier of the low-value goods right. if the goods are purchased through that platform. So this is like, what, well, Netflix was the big example. Yeah, yeah okay. that's, that's a, a right. key example. Um, another reform... Yep. Um, we will see is um, that re-deliverers will be treated as the suppliers of low-value goods if the goods are delivered outside of Australia as part of that supply. Um, and just adding to that, the um, if the re-deliverer assists with their delivery into Australia as part of a shopping or delivery service yep. that it provides under an arrangement with the uh, consumer, okay. they would also be treated as a supplier of low-value goods. Okay, right. I suppose the other major reform um, is that uh, it will allow uh, the non-resident suppliers of low-value goods that are connected with Australia to elect to use the simplified registration and reporting system. Okay. And with all these changes, um, it would, of course, prevent um, double taxation. Okay. So simplified registration for GSC. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. So what, what, what's, what's the purpose of designing these uh, reforms in this way? It's uh, it's to ensure that um, GST uh, will not be charged on a sale when um, GST will be charged at the border. All right. Uh, th- there's three criteria there because the item is uh, worth over a thousand dollars. Is a tobacco product uh, or it's an alcoholic beverage. Oh, right. Um, they will not need to charge. GST on a sale if it is clear that multiple goods will be shipped to Australia in one consignment, which is worth over that $1,000 mark, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the GST will be charged at the border instead. Okay, all right. So um, just to recap on the GST registered businesses, how does it uh, work at present? So GST only applies to the sales of um, low-value imported goods to consumers in Australia. Right. So... Uh, your customer wouldn't be a consumer if they are a GST registered business who purchases the goods for use in their business. 
So it's taxed on the person who actually uses the product or the item. Okay, well, that's an important distinction. Mm. So um, all Australian GST registered business customers will expect that the GST isn't charged on sales of low-value imported goods to them. Right. So if uh, GST is incorrectly charged, this this can... Uh, have a negative impact and disadvantage customers and they might seek a refund of that GST amount oh, from possibly. the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but how do you confirm that a business is registered for GST? The the, the, the systems within the business uh, in question need to be able to determine whether the sales are made to consumers in Australia or to business businesses that are registered for Australian GST. Right. The way that the customer is the defined as a consumer is if they are either not registered for GST. That's only required to be registered if they turn over a certain amount, isn't it? Is yeah, correct. Uh, um, how much? Seventy-five thousand right. dollars. Um, the other criteria to be a consumer is that they're registered for GST, but they uh, do not purchase these goods for use in their business. All oh, right, they just purchase them for some other reason, for their own use, or yeah, yeah. I yep. assume. Yep. Um, so the best way to be sure that um, a customer is an Australian GST-registered business uh, purchasing for use in a business in Australia is uh, to get their ABN, mm-hmm. their Australian business number, and uh, they should state and clarify to you that they are indeed registered for GST. Right. Um, and I guess it wouldn't hurt to, to remind listeners that you can confirm... Uh, if somebody has an ABN and is registered for GST by uh, using the ABN lookup facility oh, on the um, ABN website. Right. And uh, it's it's also possible to um, integrate ABN lookup validation and data into your own applications, apparently, okay. these days. Yep, yep. There's, um, I think um, you were mentioning there's a, a law companion ruling that... Uh Yes, uh, it's uh, the first one of the year, <laughs> actually. Is it's a uh, <laughs> Law Companion Ruling uh, 2018-1. Uh, uh, it's uh, entitled GST on low-value imported goods. Okay, so people so, can pick up details from yep, yep, that it's, uh, it's, LCR. It's a very good ruling. I, thought, I, I think it's very um, got plenty of examples and drills down into the subject okay. matter well. Right, excellent. Right, so if a business incorrectly uh, applies GST to... to certain goods that they sell to customers um how does it impact how does it affect the customers there's a number of ways that it may um, impact um gst registered businesses um for example they might be unable to recover the amount of gst all oh, right uh, as a credit if you've got simplified gst registration and they could still be liable for um gst on their purchase under the reverse charge which we'll uh, come to shortly Oh, okay, okay. So um, you mentioned access to GST credits. What's what's the is there a, um, an implication for that? Yeah, yeah. So um, in most cases, um, as, as most people are aware, GST registered businesses are able to claim back uh, GST credits when they pay GST on their business purchases. Yep. So these businesses can only claim a credit if they have a tax invoice, unless the amount is. $82.50 or less, right. that's the threshold for a tax invoice. Yep. Um, to, to, to be an actual tax invoice, the document must include the supplier's ABN. Oh, yeah. Um, however, if uh, 
business is registered in the simplified GST system rather than the standard system, uh, you have an ARN instead of an ABN, right. which means that you can't issue a tax invoice. Okay. Um, if you don't have an ABN, uh, GST registered business customers of, the, of your business uh, would not be able to claim a GST credit for GST that was incorrectly charged if the amount is over that $82.50 figure. Right. Instead, they might come to you to seek a refund of the GST amount. And, and quite legally be able to do that. Yep. Really? Yep. It's an overcharge. Yep. If you have um, incorrectly charged GST on these sales um, and they... And, and, and you've already paid the GST over to the ATO, oh, yeah. you can only obtain a refund if you have actually reimbursed the customer. And the simplest way of doing that is by reducing the amount of payable GST in your next um, business activity statement. Oh, so you, you can do that within the month in most cases? Yep, yep, yep. month or right. quarter, yep. however now, you, Paul. Now, you, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier reverse charge, which, which intrigued me. Um, What's, what's paying GST under the reverse charge? What does that uh, entail? Sure. So um, in some cases, um, GST-registered customers may need to pay GST on their purchases because of uh, reverse charge rules. Hmm. So this would come about if they were, were not entitled to a full GST credit if GST had been charged on the sale. Uh, an example would be um, if they are purchasing the item to make input tax applies such as um, financial supplies. Yep. Input tax supplies are equivalent to um, exempt supplies in other jurisdictions. Oh, right, okay. If this is the case, the uh, the customer will need to pay GST in their activity statement that they obviously lodge with the ATO. Yep. Uh, they may be entitled to claim a partial GST credit for the purchase at the same time to the extent that they are entitled to do so. Yep. Uh, within these circumstances, even... If a tax invoice has been issued because you are registered in the standard system, the customer still needs to pay GST through the reverse charge. And as a result, this can result with GST being paid on the purchase twice. Twice. Oh, so no wonder people would be seeking refunds. Yes. Yeah, okay. It's, um, it's a little bit more complicated. That sounds easy. Oh, anything under $1,000, a digital product received in this way, GST slap it on it, but it's, um, it's not so simple. All right, David, thanks for that. Pleasure, Steve. Thank you, listeners. Um, Please stay tuned. We'll be back very soon. Welcome back, listeners. We're here with the second segment of uh, this week's podcast. I'm here with Majid Sayed. Hi, Majid. Hi. Um, Majid takes care of a lot of our, um, or all our technical team do, of course, but Majid takes care of a lot of our um, helpline queries. And uh, so, Majid, what's been hot this past couple of weeks? Uh, so there was one that was really interesting that involved a unit trust. The unit trust had three unit holders, a husband, a wife, and um, a super fund. All of them held, you know, an equal amount of units. Yep. The three unit holders, so one third of the units were held by each of the unit holders. So husband, wife, and... A, a, a super fund. A super fund, an SMSF. Yeah. So a trust, Okay. All right. I'd rather, you know, I drew it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on the white, we we got, we've only got we audio. We can't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> um, our audience can imagine what's happening. So, so three uh, people. Uh, three entities, I should say. Yep. So the unit trust and three unit holders. The unit trust owns real property. Right. And rents it to a partnership. Gosh, okay. Yep. Now, the partnership is, 
you know, controlled by the husband and the wife. As in they have, you know, 50% share each in the partnership. Right, yep. So the question was whether the unit trust was entitled to the small business CGD concessions when the real property was disposed of. Right, right. That is... Um, yeah, that that's a in very interesting question. And again, you know, they asked whether the unit holders would be entitled to some of the small business CGD concessions, that is, you know, the 50% uh, uh, small business CGD concession and uh, the retirement yep. uh, concession. And there's uh, the... Uh, so oh, there's four of them, isn't there? I was going to ask which ones would, be, would, would apply. Yeah, so they basically asked about these two. Okay. Right. And uh, so if, if, if you look at a scenario where a unit trust owns real property and has rented out the real property and it, the unit trust itself is not doing business, no. um, you know, the apparent answer might be that, uh, you know, the unit trust would not qualify for the CGT small business concessions because you uh, need to be, you know, carrying on a business. Yep. The yep. asset needs to be your active asset. Right, right. But, you know, uh, there, this is an interesting scenario. So you can qualify for small business CGD concession if an asset that you own, although you, it's not your active asset, but it's being used by a connected entity right. in its business. In this case, the partnership. In this case, the partnership. Right, right. So the partnership was using the real property for the purpose of its business. Right. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Next thing that we needed to test was, you know, whether uh, the partnership and the unit trust would be connected entities. Okay. And are they not connected because it's the same uh, people? So, th so it's, it's a test that right, you, right. you know, need to do to ascertain whether, you know, both of them are connected entities. Okay. Yep. So both of them would be considered connected entities. Let's say, for example, if both entities are under common control. That's one of the tests? That's one of the tests. Okay, yeah. So the partnership is clearly controlled by the husband and the wife. Mm -hmm. Each of them own more than, you know, 50%. Uh, I mean, each of them own a 50% interest in the partnership. Yep. So you need only a 40% interest to establish control. Ah, oh, okay. Yep. So both of them have 50%, so they clearly control the partnership. When it comes to the unit trust, um, all three unit holders own 33.33% of the units. Right, that's right. So that would not give them control. No, no. So next thing we need to see is whether, you know, uh, the three unit holders are affiliates or not. And the trust is... If they're affiliates, yep. then, you know, their combined interest would be considered for the purpose of establishing whether they control the unit trust or not. I see, yep. So for the purpose of passively held assets, there's a special test that, I mean, there's a special rule that says that husband and wife or spouses would be considered affiliates. Yep, naturally. Right. So in this case, you know, the combined uh, unit holding would be over 40%. Yep, yep. So that means, you know, that control the unit trust. So since the husband and wife control the unit trust and they control the partnership, yep. both the partnership and the unit trust are subject to common control. So that means they're connected entities. Okay. Yep. Right. So. And does that clear the way for claiming the small business concessions? So yeah, yeah. So we pass one hurdle. Okay. There are other tests that need to be performed. Ah. So uh, the next thing that you need to look at is whether the unit trust passes the uh, 
six million net asset value test. Okay, yep. If it does, then you know, since uh, the, uh, the asset is being used in the business of a connected entity, you would ordinarily qualify for the small business CDD concessions. Is this six million of just that active asset or overall? It's you know, uh, so the active asset test yep. includes your connected entities as well. Oh, okay. So yeah, if you know the six million net asset value test is not passed, yep. there's another test that you can uh, perform, which is that the connected entity, which is the partnership. If the partnership you know satisfies the two million turnover test, then you would qualify for the small business CDT concession. Right. Yep. So in yep. this case, you know. The partnership was carrying on business. The partnership satisfied the two million uh, turnover test. Yep. And uh, you know the asset was an active asset of the partnership. Yep. So the unit trust was entitled to, to the small business CGD concessions. That, that is still the case. It's still two million dollar threshold, isn't it, for the CGD concessions? Yep, but it's, it is. It's an other thresholds for different matters. Like yeah. ten million is the. It's ten million. But that does not, you know, apply in, it's still in, too in, in this for the situation for the CDD small business concessions. Right. Okay. So, sorry, you were saying that they were eligible? Yes. So okay. the unit trust, since uh, the partnership in this particular case satisfied the, the two million test. Yeah. Yeah. The unit trust was eligible for, you know, the CDD small business concessions. Okay. On uh, disposal of, you know. Of the real property. Of the real property. Yeah. And they'd be happy with that answer, I'm assuming? Look, you know, again, uh, <laughs> we do not give them a direct answer. Oh, no, no. It's the right? site the situation. So we give them the information. Yep. And since we do not provide tax advice, we cannot clearly say that, you know, you would qualify You should do this, this. you should do that. No, but yeah. th that's the situation. So, yeah. b But, you know, they would be able to figure out that, you know, they qualify for the concessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know... Bear in mind that um, you know the certain changes coming up. I've n not seen whether you know um, there has been an amendment, but you know uh, we had draft law come out, which would you know change some of these conditions. I'm not going to discuss you know what the changes are going to be over here, but well, they're still proposed. Is uh, that right? Yes, it's it's draft law, and it's, you okay. know probably going to be amended. Yeah. Yeah. In, maybe in the coming weeks or the coming months. Oh, do you think it might be in the budget? Who knows? Um, no, no, it's already there. It's already there. Oh, right. right okay. Right. okay. So, yeah. Again, so this was for the unit trust. So the next question was whether the unit holders would be entitled to uh, the small business 50% uh, concession oh, right. for active assets. As individuals? As individuals. Right. So, you know, when the portion of uh, the capital gain that was exempt under the 50% uh, small business uh, active asset concession yep. passes on to the unit holder. It's not exempt uh, in the hands of the unit holders, as in, you know, it would have, you know, tax consequences. For the unit holder, it would trigger CGT event E4, okay. yep. which means that the unit holder would have to deduct uh, the amount of capital gain, the the capital gain attributable to the 50% active asset reduction yep. from, you know, the cost base of the unit units that the unit holder holds. Okay, yeah. And let's say if the gain is more than the cost base of those units, then a capital gain tax oh, event okay. would happen and you'd have to pay 
uh, capital gain tax on the excess. And that accrues to the individual. Yeah. So this covers the normal scenario. And, you know, in, in certain situations, let's say if the unit trust is in the course of being wound up. Oh, yeah. In that case, uh, the relevant CGD, CGT event would be C2 because the units would come to an end. Mm. And uh, the difference between the cost base of the units and, uh, you know, this amount that you receive would trigger a capital gain. Yeah, yeah, okay. Or loss, as the case may be. As it works out. Next, uh, you know, if you look at the retirement exemption, assuming, you know, the unit holders qualify all the conditions, if they received, uh, you know, that portion of the capital gain, that is going to be non-assessable, non-exempt income in their hands. Ah, right, yep. So basically this was, you know, an interesting helpline call. And yeah. that included, you know... All uh, sorts of scenarios. You know, I had to do a lot of research to be able to answer this. Yeah, of course. So it would yeah, take ages. I, I found it really interesting. Yeah, interesting, but uh, it would have been a lot of research, like you said. Yeah. yeah. Okay, it's uh, certainly a bit of a curly one, uh, Majid, but um, what else has been on the uh, helpline query desk? So there was another very interesting question regarding the main residence exemption. And... This was a person who had, you know, owned different properties over a period of 17 years. 17? Okay. Yeah. And uh, he'd owned at least, lived in at least five different properties. Right. Yep. And I'd try to simplify the example over here. Okay. To Just to explain, you know, what the question was and, you know, uh, what uh, the right treatment in that scenario would be. So <clears throat> this is an individual who lives in townhouse A for the first four years. Right. Then he vacates townhouse A and moves to townhouse B and lives in that for the next three years. And he sold townhouse A? He didn't sell ah. townhouse A. Okay. So at the end of the seventh year, he disposes of townhouse B. Right. And claims the main residence exemption. Yep. Bear in mind that townhouse A is still there. And rented out or? It's, it's just there. Just there. Right. Right. For the next three years, he go he goes abroad, yep. and doesn't have uh, you know any main residence in Australia. Right. Then he comes back, and uh, from year eleven to fourteen, he lives in townhouse C. Right. At the end of year fourteen, he disposes of townhouse C, and claims the main residence exemption for that. Right. Then for another three years, let's say from year 14 to 17, he does not have any main residence. And he doesn't go back to townhouse A? He doesn't go back to townhouse okay. A. At the end of year 17, yep. he disposes of townhouse A. Right. Now their question was, you know, whether they could claim uh, there's, you know, the absence rule. Yep. yep. With which, you know, everyone is very familiar with. So you can choose to treat... Um, a property that you have vacated as your main residence and even if even you know even after you've vacated it you can choose to treat it as your main residence and yep. that can continue indefinitely if that property is not being used for an income producing purpose oh yes that's the main thing isn't it so yep. let's say if there were no properties involved and uh, you know let's assume it was just townhouse a right and uh, this gentleman had lived in townhouse A for the first four years. And the, at the end of the 17th year, he disposes it off. He could have used the absence rule right. to claim the main residence exemption. 
for townhouse A for the entire period the, for the appreciation in the value of the townhouse over 17 years. Really? Yeah. So but as long as townhouse A is sitting there gathering dust and no one's living in it. And, uh, yeah. Okay. But he wasn't living in anywhere <coughs> from year 14 to year 17, you're saying? Yeah, but the situation over here is that, uh, you know, he, there had been, you know, two other properties. Yes, in the meantime. In the intervening period that he had treated as his main residence. That's right. So their question was, you know, during the period when he had no main residence. So there was a period when he had gone overseas. And there was another period of two, three years, you know, where he didn't have any main residence. Yeah. Could they cl- claim the absence rule for that? And, you know, make townhouse A, you know, um, exempt from CGT during that period. Right. So the answer to that question is that once you choose to treat another property as your main residence, which he did for townhouse B and C, yep. you cannot go back and claim the main residence exemption for townhouse. I mean, you cannot go and claim, you know, or use or employ the absence rule for townhouse A. Oh, okay. You you lo- you lose that option. Well, because you're not absent, you're actually claiming the main residence. Yeah, because you've claimed B&C. the main residence exemption for other properties. Yes, yeah. And uh, the interesting thing is that ATO in um, a ruling addressed the situation, and I cannot remember th- the ruling number at the moment. Right. But you know they addressed a similar situation and they said that you could, you know, if you so decide, claim the main residence exemption for let's say townhouse A. If you go and modify your returns for previous periods where you had treated townhouse B and C as your main residence. Ah, so okay. you need to offer those for tax. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in that case, then you can claim townhouse <coughs> A so if as he, your yeah. main residence. So, so if he went and re- relinquished that claim in on B and C, he then was open to yeah. claim mm-hmm. for A. Ah, wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But in this case, you know, there was period of 17 years. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it the relevant amendment periods had already passed and it's very difficult to go back oh. and re- amend the returns for those periods. Okay. So, in this case, Townhouse A would only be eligible for an exemption for the first four years where they actually occupied okay. uh, yeah. the property as their main residence. Well, that's, I mean, otherwise you'd have 17 years of capital gain play, play, to play with that. I mean, that's, uh, it yeah. could be a lot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what happened. So the, he was denied, or this was the law that you informed the yeah, so practitioner about. Yeah, that would be the correct treatment. Then it's up to the individual, you know, how he how he deals with it. He deals with it in yeah, his own. Return. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, that's a very interesting one. Okay, um, thank you very much, Majid. Uh, Thanks, Steve. That was educational. I hope it was educational to listeners as well. Um, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Okay, and uh, and we're back. I'm Steve Burnham with you again, and I've got David Ebden at the other on the other microphone. Hi, David. Hello again, Steve. Yeah, Steve. I'd, I'd noticed that um, you've written an article on on our, uh, I suppose, blog, um, taxandsupernewsroom.com.au, oh, yeah. yep. uh, discussing the recent increase to the general interest charge. Oh, the general interest charge. Yeah, that's they. It keeps going up. Well, steadily, like everything, keeps going up. Always um, the way. Um, it's made a slow climb since December from 8.7 it was in the end of December, January to March. Um, this year, 8.72, but it's just gone up for the April to June quarter to um, jumped up to 8.77. So it's getting more fraught. Uh, it doesn't pay to have a penalty from the ATO because the interest that's charged on that penalty uh, keeps going up. It's, um, mm-hmm. 
It's interesting. I don't know why it keeps coming up. I mean, I suppose I do know why, but... Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting, I suppose, Dave, because just, just as a a side issue... Yeah. Um, oh, well, it might not be a side issue if you've got some uh, clients who are really behind in their tax affairs, but yeah. um, between July and September uh, 2012, the uh, general interest charge rate was actually 10.66%. Oh, wow, so it's gone down from then. Mm. Okay. So it goes down and up, down yeah, and up. Yeah, yeah. It's... Um, Quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. But it, it does make it a, a... It's a bit of a spur to get things right, I suppose, if you're going to be um, slapped with the interest as well as the, the penalty. Yeah, 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 correct. So, so it's the interest on the shortfall of tax, is that right? Or yeah, yeah. So um, we may discuss the shortfall interest charge um, shortly. Yeah. But the, uh, the, the general interest charge, um, it would apply to pretty much all outstanding debts, Um so that would include income tax and FBT, right? Um, and it's it's worked out on a compounding basis, okay? You know, daily, and it would apply in addition to any other late lodgement or administrative penalty. Oh, I was see, I was going. I was wondering about that because in the rates, it has a daily rate, you know, zero point zero two four, and it goes on for about seven numbers so yeah. they it's compounding therefore what yeah. they calculate every day yeah wow correct okay correct um so the the nominal annual interest rate is actually the monthly average yield of 90 day bank accepted bills ah. which um in uh, layman's terms is the base interest rate okay uh plus seven percent okay and then the daily effective rate would be adjusted yeah to, to that, that. So that's that's where the GIC amount comes from. And it, I suppose I'm imagining it's made at the level that it is to um, so that the uh, government doesn't kind of lose out. Yeah. I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's set at a very high rate, you know, as compared with commercial, yeah, you yeah. know, interest rates to encourage that, you know, prompt payment. Oh, sure. And um, it doesn't escalate. So, yeah, generally, it reflects the interest rate charged by banks. On um, unsecured loans. Okay. Yep. Okay. In general terms. Okay. And, and again, that's not something you want to have, um, have to have hanging over your head for too long. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it 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 is um, the GIC is a separate penalty. Right. That is based on the amount of the tax liability. Yep. And you know, is calculated on the unpaid daily balance. Okay. From you know the due date. Yeah. So you know, it is in addition to that. Uh, fine. I, I guess uh, I, I should make uh, listeners aware. I'm sure many are aware that GIC imposed is tax deductible in the income year that the notice, which includes the um, general interest charge, yep. uh, is is deductible. To claim a deduction for the um, interest charge, it must be more than merely impending, threatened, or expected. It has to be incurred. Yep. The issue of the notice would establish that the debt has been incurred. Right. Okay. So once you get that um, notice, you can claim your um, interest charge. Okay. Well, that's a little light in the yeah. dark tunnel. Yeah, yeah something, <laughs> something. It's just a shame you've got to spend that money to get your percentage yeah, of it back. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's better uh, not to incur it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you mentioned before the shortfall interest. Um, I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, so that's... Um, that's the SIC, um, yep. shortfall interest charge, um, and that would apply where a tax shortfall has been caused by an understatement of income tax uh, liability. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, 
the the, yeah, the SIC regime is contained in Division 280 of the uh, Income Tax Act, mm-hmm. and it would only apply to amended assessments from 2004-05 onwards. So really? it doesn't apply to anything. Oh, it was only introduced then, more yeah, or less. That's okay. correct. Right. So it's it, it's calculated on the same basis as the general charge, yep. but it's four percentage points less per annum. Okay. Uh, again, you know, the official rates are available on the ATO's website for those who are interested. Yeah. Um, it would apply regardless of whether the taxpayer is liable for any other penalty. And as with the GIC, it applies on a daily compounding basis from the due date right. of the payment of the understated assessment. Okay, yep. So in normal circumstances, the understated assessment will be the original assessment. And the SIC will apply from the date any payment is due to be made in respect of that original statement. Okay. Uh, assessment, I should say. Yeah, yeah. When the understatement occurred as a result of a erroneous credit amendment subsequently requested by the taxpayer, right. the um, special interest charge would commence from the date of that amendment. Okay. Where there are multiple amendments, the um, SIC would apply to each amendment concurrently. Oh, okay, no, not all lumped together. Well, mm. they might have different dates. So yeah, that exactly makes right. So the the due date for payment of the shortfall and the related um, special interest charge would be 21 days after the date on which the ATO has given the notice yep. increasing the liability. Um, yeah, if, if payment isn't made by that date, then the GIC would also automatically apply. Right, okay. It's not unheard of for the ATO to remit the um, shortfall interest charge uh, where it's, you know, reasonable and okay. fair to do so. So it's worth asking? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, if the ATO refuses to remit the uh, SIC, it needs to provide written reasons for rejecting okay. and the um, remission request. Yeah. So the written reasons are intended to improve confidence, you know, in the objectivity yeah. and yeah. the fairness of the uh, process. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's something to ask for, especially perhaps given the latest, uh, I don't know, media reports about uh, mm. ATO, you know. Yeah. I mean, when, when considering, I, I, I do have a couple of dot points here in front of me. Okay. Um, um, when the um, ATO is considering whether to remit all or part of the um, shortfall interest charge, yep. uh, there are two things that the ATO have to consider. The, the, the first point uh, that they need to consider is that remission should not occur just because of the benefit received from the temporary use of the shortfall amount is less than the shortfall interest charge. For example, whether the taxpayer's rate of finance is lower than the uh, shortfall oh, interest see, yeah. charge. Yeah. And the second being um, that the remission should occur where the circumstances justify the Commonwealth bearing part of the cost of the delayed receipt of taxes. Okay. Well, the, yeah, going go to pains to be fair to each each case, which mm. is a, good to see, I suppose, but it makes it a difficult calculation. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are some examples um, where remission should occur. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a few. I've got a few more dot points for you, including um, ATO delay oh, yeah. for one reason or the other, um, taxpayer delay, you know, there may be some special circumstances that may warrant remission. Yep. Um, claims for legal professional privilege or access to professional advisors' working papers. So I guess they're checking the 
diligence. Yeah, yeah. Um, unprompted voluntary disclosures and advanced payment of shortfall amount. You know, that's I guess that's doing the oh, right yeah. thing, isn't it? And, yep, um, catching up. Yep. Um, uh, it can also be remitted where the tax shortfall has been offset by a related credit if one of your tax oh, accounts... Oh, you end up yep. having a credit. Okay, yep, yep, yep. 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 Um, the last two would be um, costs of administration. Uh, yeah, that's to say that when the interest charge is minimal, yeah. you know, it's uh, easier to write it off than, than chase, chase it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And the last one would be um, reliance on ATO advice or their general administrative practice. Know, has led to this error. Led to this occurring. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Oh, that's good to know. Uh, just one last thing to note, Steve. Yep. Um, the ATO issues um, running balance accounts. Right. Uh, these involve the production of um, basically account statements showing total outstanding debts, you know, in, in the taxpayer's name. Yeah. Um, for a layperson, I guess the statements are pretty much similar to a commercial credit card and check account statements and they just show the amount of interest uh, in the form of a daily interest rate okay. applicable to an outstanding account balance. So very similar to how the credit card companies have got to show what interest what you're paying. Yeah. And, um, yeah. 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 Oh, there the, you go. Yeah. Good to the, the, that they're accountable and the taxpayers are accountable or can account for things as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Thanks, David. Thank you, Steve. Um, Listeners, thank you again. Now, please hang around. We'll be right back. And we're back. Uh, It's a little bit of a solo session with me, Steve Burnham, your host, uh, for this. And I'm just uh, going to run over a a bit of a background to tax legislation as it applies to to Australia. Uh, Now, you probably know a lot of this, but maybe you don't. So let's just uh, run over it just to see where where we are. Um, now, we know under the federal system that was established by the Australian Constitution of 1901, uh, powers of government are distributed between a national government, the Commonwealth, and the six states. Uh, the three territories, the ACT, Northern Territory and Norfolk Island, have self-government arrangements. And then the Constitution defines the boundaries of law-making powers between the Commonwealth and the states and territories. Now, legislation, or statute, can be defined as general rules of conduct without reference to particular cases or situations. As we know, case law comes out of court cases and that can change or add to the laws as per the legislation. So in Australia, parliaments at both the state and federal level have authority for making law and in that regard can pass legislation or statutes. But parliament can also delegate authority to statutory boards, departments or agencies to issue law. And that type of law is called delegated legislation. So under the... The Acts Interpretation Act, 1901, uh, I hadn't heard about that until now. Acts Interpretation Act, but fair enough. Any Commonwealth Acts passed um, up until January, not, 1st of January 1938, any law that was um, legislated became law upon royal assent. Right then, when the Governor-General put the stamp on, it became law. But the uh, uh, Commonwealth Acts were passed that... Um, after the 1st of January 1938, uh, an act, a uh, piece of legislation came into operation 28 days after royal assent, uh, unless a contrary intention uh, was written into it. Similarly, unless a statute is expressed to operate only for a limited period, that is, it includes a sunset clause, it remains in force until repealed. So any new legislation, this is just good to keep in mind, is not law 
until 28 days after royal assent. So just a little thing to bear in mind. Um, now, a statute can be repealed or amended by subsequent amending legislation expressly or by implication. The governing principle of implied repeal is that if a later statute is inconsistent with, or an interesting word they use here, or is repugnant to <laughs> an earlier statute, the later statute repeals the earlier statute. At the federal level, proposed amending legislation is introduced into Parliament first as a bill for an amending act. Now, when a bill, either in original or amended form, has received the approval of both houses, uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate, and has been formally assented to by the Governor General, that is, as the Queen's representatives, it receives, uh, as I say, royal assent. So that's where that term comes from. If it's been formally assented to by the Governor General, uh, it then becomes an act. Uh, changes can be introduced in either House as amendments to an amending act, and such amending acts to the legislation can be introduced at any time in e each session of Parliament. Now, under Australia's constitution, the Commonwealth Parliament can make laws on certain matters only. These include taxation, international and interstate trade, foreign affairs, defence, immigration, banking, insurance, marriage and divorce, currency and weights and measures, those three are put together, post and telecommunications, that's post as in Australia Post, uh, and invalid and old age pensions. Now, since its enactment, the Australian Constitution and Commonwealth law requires that a number of separate Commonwealth Acts must work together to constitute taxation law in Australia. So, an Assessment Act will deal with the subject of tax, its assessment and collection, but a separate Rating or Imposition Act must impose the actual tax and may fix the rate of tax on taxable income as determined under the Assessment Acts. So the two have to work together. Um, there are also regulations, underlined regulations, for each Income Tax Assessment Act, and these may prescribe how certain parts of the relevant Act, which incorporates the reference to regulations, are to be implemented, as in Income Tax Assessment Regulations 1997 and Income Tax Regulations 1936, so they're the two, the two main tax acts. Now, regulations are an example of delegated legislation. Remember that term I used before? Delegated legislation. Um, and it's easier to make changes implementing certain parts of an Act by regulation rather than amending the Act itself using the full legislative process. So, you know, rather than go through the whole rigmarole. So when amending the Act, the provisions in question must be passed by both Houses of Parliament and given royal assent. So they've still got to get the same stamps of approval. However, provided that regulations are made within the authority granted by the relevant Act, these can be made by the relevant authorised person and thus save parliamentary time. Fair enough. Either House of Parliament does have the power to veto the regulations, and in certain cases, Parliament must give affirmative approval. So you can make the changes, but you've got to get um, the tick of approval by, by Parliament. And the Australian states um, also have legislative powers over many areas. Um, state governments have some powers to legislate for state-based taxes, uh, of course, such as land tax, payroll tax and, and, and stamp duty. So... Just a little rundown of tax legislation. Um, I hope you didn't mind listening to that. Um, uh, I, I also should say that I'm going to come back in a couple of seconds with a new segment, I thought, for the Tax Rat podcast, which um, let's call it uh, WTF. I'll be back in a few seconds to explain that. Okay, I'm back uh, with the last short segment for the Tax Rat podcast, which I... As I said previously, I've thought I'd label WTF, which stands for Wacky Tax Facts. Why, what were you thinking? 
Anyway, wacky tax facts. Here's a wacky tax fact for you, but you didn't know this. In the 1950s, some ATO personnel informally referred to the tax laws that they dealt with as pig's stew. Pig stew, P-I-G-S-S-T-E-W. This was because they collected payroll tax, P, income tax, I, and so it goes, gift duty, sales tax, Steve Doring industry charge, tobacco tax, estate duty, and wool tax. Pig's stew. There you go. Uh, Thanks for being with us again for this Tax Wrap podcast. I'm Steve Burnham, and please tune in again next time.